Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. The most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight. This is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy. It's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us. We don't do interviews. We do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill. We drink. We play games. We have the song of the week. We have the creative curse word of the week. As long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on, but that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Ben Taylor of Thinking Basketball, all the different places you could have that, his book, YouTube, podcast, everything else, Patreon. And part of what we're trying to do is appreciate and put the 2021 NBA Finals in context, but for those of you who know podcasts with the two of us, we go in a lot of other directions as well. A little bit under an hour. I think you all will really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure. You you always catch me at the best time. So, you know, we're coming off the, A, it's the end of the season, which is a much needed break. And B, um, I, I think from a basketball standpoint, it was a really nice coda to the end of the season with the Suns and the Bucks kind of matching up in a way that was really interesting and also playing uh, a lot of exciting basketball for six games. Absolutely. And I mean, it's a couple of times now that we've had good fortune where we've scheduled something with a deliberate idea in mind and then kind of things got better than we anticipated. The last time, for those who remember, was basically the the morning after all of the insanity with like Chris Paul, Chris Paul getting COVID and then all the coaches getting fired and everything else. And now we're in we're in the place of a resolved and, as you said, fun, intriguing NBA Finals. And the reason I wanted to talk with you is that you, I, of, of all the people that I, I talk with regularly, I think you do the best job of immediate, immediate contextualization. And it's something that I try, I strive for. It's something that I, but it's something that I think is very valuable, not only for analysts, but for fans alike. It's kind of being able to say like, okay, how does this fit into the overall stuff? And I didn't know that we were going to get a fully historic NBA Finals performance <laughs> by Giannis Antetokounmpo, but we did. And so now that is a place among many that we can discuss. Yeah, I actually um, talked about this on the Thinking Basketball podcast yesterday a little and did some um, additional sort of stat research for that. And I have a video that hopefully I'm going to finish on Giannis. Giannis threw me off with his game six. I had actually been working on a video about him throughout kind of the finals and was ready to release it as the series was winding down. And part of it is my my brain is totally lagged and slow. But another part of it is I'm I'm sort of shaping the things I want to hit. And then game six came around and I was like in the middle of the game, I was like, boys, going to score 
It's going to score 50 points in a championship clinching game. This is crazy. And of course, there was a moment we forget where uh, I think it was tied going into the fourth quarter, right? It was you know, the Suns had a little bit of a lead and there were moments where it was slightly dicey and then um, Giannis just kept coming and he just kept coming and he kept coming and he kept coming and credit to all the Bucks down the stretch of that game. But for him to have a series where he had three 40-point games, finished it with a 50-point game, had the dunk at the end of one game, the the block part two. What, what We need a good nickname for that, Danny. What should we call that block? I don't have a name yet. I'll work on it. Yeah. I mean, we're we not to... we're not going to beat Valley Oop for a name in something in these playoffs. Like, that was just perfect. The valley oop was fantastic, and then of course um, we had a, we had another alley oop at the at the end of the game in Phoenix. So so there's a lot um, that happened in that series, and I, I appreciate the the compliment. I know some people have actually been frustrated over the years. People have followed my work. I've seen a few complaints that I'm I'm too sort of smooth smoothing out of all the um, all the kind of perspectives if you will when they happen so in this case the inclination is to say oh wow i can't think of a finals that was better than that or maybe my mind's going back to shack 2000 um another thing that i've seen a lot of people do is they say well if i look at game score on basketball reference there's only a handful of series that ever look better if i look at points per game and and the combination of points per game rebounds assists and scoring percentage or field goal percentage true shooting whatever it is i've never seen anything like this and and my thought there on those things is we're going to continue to see more of that in the better scoring environments and yes, a lot of the work that's a great that, point. right yeah so a lot a lot of the work that i do is relative to the environment and that's why um you know the the way i've sort of described this Giannis series is it looks to me like one of the five maybe one of the 10 best finals performances i've seen in the last 20 or so years and you look through the data and that's kind of what the the stats that i prefer to look at for a single series say and by the way you know data in a single series is very difficult to kind of make sense of and contextualize but so on one hand you have this thing where it's like yes is definitely an incredible series it's definitely a, a historic performance when you add in the bucks winning their first title in 50 years and some of the key plays down the stretch oh and the fact that he did it coming off the hyperextended knee which still defies sort of logic and also i think is a great sign um for his body moving forward that that he recovered from something like that so well so all of that is to say um I think we need to be a little careful with how incredible the offensive numbers look, but yeah, man, that was that was an incredible performance. And and so it's interesting because I think you have kind of two things going in different directions thinking about Giannis's performance and in terms of like using stat using counting stats to do it. So one is, and I think this is such an important place to start, is that we are in a different counting stats environment. We're putting more possessions, the just the flow of offense and everything else, and so you expect there to be a bump in terms of points, rebounds, assists, blocks to some extent and everything else. Right. However, the thing that I think goes the other way, and yeah, Giannis having five blocks in game six is a little bit different, but Giannis has a different set of defensive responsibilities, and we know 
pretty pretty dang clear now that defense is harder to quantify not impossible but harder to quantify than offense and his defensive responsibilities and the importance of those responsibilities is different than a lot of the other great players who had finals not all of them like bill russell of course had a lot to do and various other ones though the statistical stuff when you go back that far or even to kareem or wilt is really difficult you've talked more about that than almost anybody but Giannis, you know, like there's a reason he was regular season defensive player of the year previously. And it's because he, you know, he's a big part of slowing down the attack at the rim. The the math problem as the Bucks do it, where you know you're trying to stop things at the rim, fewer attempts, lower success rate, fewer free throw attempts. And so the basically betting that the other team is gonna make fewer threes and mid rangers than you can make everything else. And that's different than the role that Magic Johnson had with the Junior Skyhook in 80 or mm-hmm. MJ. I mean, Jordan had, he had a big defensive role too. I mean, accomplished in his own ways, but it was different. And I, so I think that when we, when we limit it to the counting stats with the noted exception of like him having the, the re- defensive rebounds count, you know, that's something that I think in some ways is over reflected in defensive quality and block shots, which depends on circumstance. So, I do think it's worth taking a beat to acknowledge, like to to think about Giannis's defensive role relative to some of those other incredible performances. Yeah, I have a question um, for you. I've I've thrown this around this week, looking back on the finals. Drew Holiday and the defensive, and we can we can tie this back to Giannis. Let's not let's not forget because sometimes we get down so many tangents, but it relates back to Giannis. Drew Holiday, he had such a large sort of defensive responsibility in this series you know go take away one of the snakeheads for the suns just completely cut it off and for the middle part of the series it was largely chris paul when they were on the court together um you know the suns were trying to do stuff like set screens at midcourt or in the backcourt to spring him and drew's responsibility and he's obviously a fantastic man and on-ball defender but he's also a fantastic screen navigator and so his responsibility is to work to get around all of those screens and just pester the ball and not give up uh, a soft switch or an easy switch or a mismatch switch he's he's working his tail off to stay connected to these guys um, basically in like almost full court pickup right like he's picking up the ball 75 feet away sometimes and doing this I think Chris Paul by the way tried a, a rip through foul from like 80 feet away at some point he in the did. series. Chris Paul yeah. does that. <laughs> um, man, that would have been fun if they called that. But so, so when you have that level of defensive responsibility and assignment, what does that do to your offense? How much does that take away from your legs? How much does that take away from your mental focus and just kind of the accumulated fatigue of all of that? How much can we expect that to curtail your offense? And for the guys that can do it both ways or that have responsibilities. I mean, you mentioned Bill Russell and Russell, A, we have limited um, footage back then, but B, the game was, the game was a simpler game. It was a more condensed game. There was no three point line. You couldn't kind of dribble as easily with the rules. And so yes, Russell could switch out on certain guys. Um, if they played a team like the, the Royals and the Royals had Oscar Robertson and they played pick and roll, he could cover that. But for the most part, he got to play 45 or 46 minutes a game because he could stay in the paint. He didn't have to chase guys around. And so these players that we see today, um, you know, how do we account for that when 
someone has to exert themselves on the perimeter and constantly chase the the heavy motion offenses of you know these the stars of these offenses around when we go back to contextualize their offensive numbers it is a real challenge and i think that it does make you know it does make life harder for those guys you know if we're talking about heavy defensive load that makes it more challenging for them offensively you don't i would say there is a i would my instinct would be it is a modest but tangible and significant reduction that you have there Mm -hmm. just because and I mean, the other part of that for Drew Holiday, you you brought up like the extra workload the guys have now was also the minutes that he was playing in this series. I mean, played Drew Holiday played 46 in the closeout game. He was he was incredibly high right overall in the series, a series where no game went to overtime. Drew Holiday averaged 42 minutes a game. That's incredible. And a yeah. lot of the top bucks, Middleton wasn't too far off of that. Giannis who remember was coming off of a coming off of what we thought was a catastrophic knee injury he averaged 40 minutes a game in the finals and so yeah i, I think that it does matter and i think that the, the where i thought you were going to go with drew holiday's drew holiday's performance is the idea that it changes the degree of difficulty for for giannis as well where if what you're trying to do is basically sick this talented defender on an offensive player well then you are theoretically giving the rim protectors that wasn't all Giannis did but that was the primary thing you had to do he's giving them less to do and so it lowers their degree of difficulty now they still have to actually do it and for the most part I thought that the the Bucks succeeded on that front so but in terms of Holiday you know like yeah I do think it it, it worked it challenged his offense also you know, like the thing that part of why I was so excited about Holiday on the Bucks in the first place was the idea that he didn't have to be the guy offensively. That there were different places to go. It was, I, it did give me, you know, cold sweats, cold sweats at night <laughs> about whether they were their crunch time offense was going to be there. And you know, they're going back to I think that was game. I think that was game four, or game five. No, it was game five where the Bucks crunch time offense was pretty bad. But the Suns' crunch time offense was bad too. Like both teams, also both teams were playing wonderful defense. You know, it's, it's both of those things put together. And so, the, but the Bucks had, I think, they started that kind of run out with a ten point lead, and the Suns couldn't cut it enough to win the game. To win the game, you know, it's yeah. I'll keep going. Oh, so I think that you know there were there were ways that Drew Holiday's limitations, like he's a player with extreme strengths and unusual limitations for how good he is and his size, that that could have been a real problem for the Bucks. And I think there were times when it was true against the Nets, but what happened happened. And I, I think that it is possible to simultaneously appreciate and discuss the the role that Drew Holiday had in their defensive success. And specifically, like, I mean, there were part of why I loved this series so much was that you gave a lot of these players a situation that was an unusual challenge or an unusual opportunity for success. So with Drew Holiday, he is an unbelievable individual defender and you gave him two guys to defend. So you could, you know, you, you, you got that value add basically the whole game. And for, for Giannis, like offensively, the other team had a grand total of one player who could defend him. And Giannis, at times, to his credit, got that one player in foul trouble, and that one player didn't do a phenomenal job. He, I think Aiton tried his hardest, and I thought he did reasonably, you know, he did reasonably well given his capacity. It's just that Giannis is incredible. Right. Yeah. So, so there's a lot there. Let me, um, let me go back Apologies. to where you started. No, no, no. It's fantastic. Let me just go back to where you started because I think that first point about Drew, um, or any defensive player like that kind of 
displacing some of the defensive load on another star, I think is exactly the kind of thing to contextualize both holistically just in this in a season or a playoff run but if you were to evaluate how someone played at least if i were in a series or a game i would take something like that exactly into consideration hey one guy so so this is really interesting because take the four for 20 drew holiday game well he almost had two of them didn't he but take the take the one a couple games ago where it if you were to see this game 25 years into the future and you were to dial up basketball reference you would say oh my god Giannis had no supporting cast um this supposedly borderline-ish or all-star type player with this big contract and off-season acquisition he was terrible he choked he shot four for 20 couldn't throw it in the ocean and you would completely kind of do another one of these classic trade-offs where you are acting like defense doesn't really count or something and focusing on the offensive and specifically kind of shooting numbers to prop someone up or or take someone down. And it's like there's an interplay there, and that interplay exists both when we just focus on a player, but it also focuses on these kinds of roles. And as you said, I think it's such a great point. Like if you are a team and you ask another guy to take that load, then it frees up, in a sense, the star, and in this case Giannis maybe, to push and play harder on offense. If you did the opposite, if you said, hey, we're going to need um, – Anthony Davis to cover all these players and do all this stuff, then we shouldn't necessarily expect him to shoot 65% and score 35 points per game on the other end. He did happen to be very hot last year in the bubble, but so maybe that's not the best example. But that kind of interplay, I think, is something that is overlooked a lot. Yeah, I think that's really true. And the Shifting responsibilities, all, even between series or within a series, is such a fascinating dynamic that can really affect how we think about players, how we evaluate teams and everything else. And it's a part of why, I mentioned this before, why I'm so happy that this series happened, because it it created a lot of that. And one of the interesting kind of elements of it also was figuring it out for the Suns guys defensively. I mean, Mikhail Bridges has had a nice playoffs. DeAndre Ayton has had a nice playoffs. Chris Paul defensively he's getting a little bit more limited at you know in his in his mid to late 30s it happens to all of us and he's obviously started at a much higher point than basically any other point guard that I can think of in, at this point but so he created all of these different challenges and like I thought Aiton Aiton's a really fascinating one too because he I think you can make an argument that while he had a a, a series of big challenges early that he also was put in situations that, like, he was got big challenges, but there were big challenges that relatively fit fit what he could do. So, like, Jokic is tough, but Jokic is tough. I mean, he's regular season MVP, unbelievable talent, but what he does is kind of within the frame of reference for Aiden. And then the, the Clippers series was a kind of a, a, a challenge because it kept on shifting around. But Giannis is kind of his own thing. And so I thought that it was a reminder that, Aiton deserves a ton of credit for how he has improved. He had a couple of wonderful series. If he is less good in those series, the Suns may not win. Um, I mean, they swept the Nuggets, so it's not. It's, not, it's hard to say. Like if he was a little <laughs> bit worse, they they probably still would have won. But it is a reminder that as and I mean, Gobert against the Clippers is of course an example of this one. People try to argue, oh, he wasn't the regular season defensive MVP because he couldn't stop the small ball Clippers. What? Like anyway. <laughs> and, and so it is a reminder that as great as anyone is, no one is perfect for everything. And that's, I think, honestly, that's a part of why I love basketball is that, yes, the best of the best can 
impose their will and can can do certain things against everybody. But there is no guarantee that they are going to dominate. They're not going to succeed at the same level against every opponent. See, I I think this is this is so important, and it goes both ways because you've got Giannis, and if you play a athletic heat team with Bam Adebayo and kind of the right guys on the floor, then, hey, maybe we're perfectly matched to take him away. Um, I actually think the Toronto series of 2019 is a better example. Sure. So, right, but but just the concept of the style makes the fight or the opponent matchup is so perfect. You know, we we started talking about where everyone's been lately and contextualizing these finals and a series that gets thrown around is Michael Jordan's 1993 um, series against the Suns at the end of the season. Now, he had crazy numbers in this series. I want to say off the top of my head, he averaged 41 a game. And I've, I've told this sort of personal um, anecdote before. When I was growing up, after that series, I thought that was like the pinnacle of basketball. Um, I was like, I was like, I have never seen a guy, you can say what you want about his defense or, um, you know, where he was athletically in 91 versus 93 or whatever, but oh my God, the games he had and the numbers and the stats and 55 in this game and, you know, he scores all the points in the fourth quarter and just like everything that he was doing was amazing. And I think what's changed in the last couple decades for me is realizing, oh, in the earlier rounds of that very same playoffs, he played like monster defenses, like the Knicks, that, that, that classic Pat Riley Knicks defense. And it's weird to say Jordan struggled because he's just so good that that's not quite, you know, a fair term to use. It's misleading. But the numbers weren't nearly as good. Um, the pressure that defenses could apply to him had some effect on his shot quality. And then you watch the Suns series over and you realize, oh, the Suns weren't a very good defense. And not only that, but they didn't really have anyone equipped to stop him in the two levels that you want to stop him. That's up on the ball and getting into him where, you know, you don't have a, a great um, foot speed wing defender. I think for that series, Richard Dumas may have been the closest, but I don't even remember him guarding MJ that much. I don't think he's quick enough. And then you want someone on the back line. You want a rim protector. You want some of MJ's toughest series have been against guys like Patrick Ewing, Dikembe Mutombo, things like that. So it, all it, this is, is, this, is this where you also bring up Charles Barkley's defense on the Paxson three? Oh, my God. I mean, I, I tweeted it out recently. I, I, I have a section on it in Thinking Basketball, the book. It's just still incredible to watch. Like, this championship play, and Charles Barkley is just loafing around, like, out of position, late on the play, goes for a steal, gets – I don't know what he's doing. He, when he's getting back, he's trying to foul. I don't remember that they had a foul to give. So what? What? what's going – like, what is he doing? Oh, foul, anyway. fouling without a foul to give in an important moment for a Phoenix Sun? <laughs> That's never happened since. Oh, my God. Um, anyway, all of this is to say that we, this is where I think, um, I do more of this kind of perspective building than the average instant take kind of reaction to a series like this where, yeah, it it was a great series, but I'm more interested in what happens if he played a team like this in 2019 first or whatever, um, and then later on, he he plays the Raptors. The narrative is completely inverted. It's just a completely different story that people have. So that's the kind of contextualization that is really important for me to say, yeah, the Suns weren't – it's a couple things. One, the Suns weren't a great defense. Two, as you just pointed out, they just didn't really have the bodies to defend him. I mean, Aiton, Aiton was game, um, but outside of that, even just the other guys in help – 
weren't really equipped. And when you juxtapose that with the 19 Raptors, you've got Marc Gasol back there. You've got Serge Ibaka. Um, you're putting Pascal Siakam, who's who's kind of physically, athletically, the closest mirror maybe to Giannis in the league. You've got uh, Kawhi Leonard. It, it's just night and day. And so the, the totality of NBA history suggests over and over again that that matters, right? And that opponent quality and that style matchup is actually going to be fairly predictive of what someone's numbers look like in a series. And oh, by the way, uh, as as well as Giannis played on offense, I thought his decision making through most of the yes. series was was phenomenal. Oh yeah, um, best best of his career. Right, right. And I think he's been trending toward that um, in the last couple rounds. A- as good as all of that was, the Bucks didn't really have a great offensive series. Uh, you mentioned their crunch time offense. They they did not come out and and torch the opponent to win this series. They still won this series with their historically good defense. And I had these moments at the end of a couple of the close games where they didn't get a good possession down the stretch. They threw up a brick. The Suns were coming down. They were either making a huge run or it was really close. And they had this key possession. And as the defenses are getting set, or as the Bucks defense is getting set, I'm thinking to myself, wait, this is where the Bucks like, this is the side of the court that the Bucks actually have more swagger, confidence, execution. Um, and I think most of those possessions, I haven't checked the Suns kind of like last minute close game possessions. There are only a handful of them. But most of those possessions didn't end well for Phoenix. Right. And I, I, there are a couple of pieces, a couple of data points that I think are worth mentioning here. So the overall series, and so this includes, there wasn't a ton of garbage time in the series, but so it was a 115 offensive rating for the Bucks and a 112 for the Suns. So that was, it was more offensive than I had thought, but it was very inconsistent. Like there were times when it seemed like both teams couldn't miss a shot. And then there were times that neither team could really make a shot. There were those high turnover binges and transition and everything else. It went through a lot of ebbs and flows. But I thought one interesting thing Kevin Pelton talked about in his piece after game six, and I, I, it was it was a piece of context that I hadn't thought about as much, was that when you think about the importance of a player to a series, and incidentally, this sort of came up with Aiton and the Nuggets in a different way, not what I intended, is that I would describe this as a pretty close series overall, not only because it went six games, but because there weren't really many blowouts other than game three, the, the Bucks kind of won that going away, and then... I would say game one was pretty comfortable with the Suns. And one way of thinking about that is that the Bucks, quote unquote, needed that level of Giannis performance in order to win the series. And I think that is a fair, a fair description. Whereas like I brought up Aiton and I'm not saying they're the same caliber of player or anything like that. It's like you think about a series differently when I, the way I, I like to describe this is kind of the way I think about in some ways most valuable player in terms of the regular season or anything else. It's like, it does matter if that if that player is what pushes you over the top, if that's what gets you to that level of success versus like you would have been you would have won the series in a sweep anyway. Like it is it's it's it makes things more squishy and nebulous, but I do think it's like it's a little it's a little feather on on his cap for this series. I'm I'm always so weary of that approach though. Because it, 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 cre- it creates problems, like because it, right. it is very it is very floaty, and that's why to me it's more of a feather in the cap rather than like a bullet on the resume. Like that to me is the difference is that it's it's a value add but not a definitional part. I mean, I think the most problematic thing for me about it is we there's an assumption that I think gets baked in when we give credit, which is that if the series went, let, let me rephrase that. It, that the reason the player played just as well as he did was because his team needed uh-huh. just that much. That's a great point. Yeah, and I, I think that's the big trap for me. Yeah, that that's a great point. Um, there is also 
and I don't know that this, I, I don't think of this for Giannis's finals because, you know, you, you play who's in front of you and the context, I mean, especially when you include the context of, I, I mean, I picked the Suns to win the series in no small part because I didn't think Giannis was going to be right the entire series, much less pretty close to it in game two. And then being the MVP of the finals and putting out this historic performance. Like that cannot be emphasized enough because it's, it feels impossible. And like, I mean, mm-hmm. I was so despondent after he went down and yeah, they beat the, they beat the Hawks and the Hawks are there. And that's exactly where I'm actually going to go in the next part of it. It is, but I want to, like, I'm going to say that until, until hopefully I, like, until, as long as I can remember it because it is, it's such an important piece of context. I am firmly of the belief that no champion has an asterisk, that every champion is deserving, that you beat the teams that are in front of you. However, I also believe that who you face and how you face them and what transpires is information that is pertinent not only for evaluating, like, the quality of a team's run, but also for the Bucks, it's relevant now because we're evaluating where they are moving forward. And part of why, you know, the, this is an unambiguous success for the for the Bucks. I'm so thrilled for them. This team has a ton of players that I'm I'm so happy won a championship, though the Suns would have had plenty as well. If we're thinking about where this Bucks team and where this NBA Finals goes, having so many talented teams missing so many important players, and that directly impacting both of these teams' paths to the finals is important because I firmly believe that the Bucks would have lost to the Nets if Kyrie Irving hadn't gotten hurt. They still nearly did. Like, and James Harden was extremely limited and everything else. And you play who's in front of you. And the, I think the Suns would have lost to the Lakers if Anthony Davis hadn't gotten hurt and then re-hurt and everything else. Mm-hmm. That does not make those teams that, like, oh, they shouldn't have made the finals or anything like that. But it is very interesting on two fronts. One of those fronts is how likely are either of these teams to make it back? And there will be a lot that changes between players not coming back or coming back and getting hurt because unfortunately that is something that happens. But also some of these macro narratives that have come about star players staying where they are and it's great. And, and I'm, I'm so thrilled that Giannis stayed and that he got exactly what he wanted. I'm concerned potentially about not play, players and teams building decisions off of this because this Bucks team is phenomenal. I mean, they were the best team in the regular season the prior two years. They were firmly in the mix in the Eastern Conference. I think, I hope to some degree that I'm wrong. I think it's a little bit aberrational in terms of like that they, you know, that they got this path and that every, you know, the things worked out to the, to the extent that they did and everything else. And if the Pelicans are making this argument to Zion, if the Mavs to Luka, if their team quality doesn't get better, they let's say they don't get another player who can move Porzingis off of being the second best player on the Mavs, that there will be some circumstances theoretically. And if players want to stay where they are, full power to them. That's one of the things I love the most about Giannis. But I think that this way of winning a championship is unusual. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pulling up the title odds for next season that are early. And of course, a lot, a lot goes into this, but just thinking about projecting forward and sort of um, learning from what we've seen in the last month or two, the Bucks are fourth in Vegas right now, and the Suns are fifth. Uh, the Lakers, Nets, and then, do you know who the third team is? It's the Warriors. Yeah, the but Warriors. that part of that is is I mean, what Vegas is trying to do is they're trying to get money on both. You know, they're trying to get they're they're trying to put the right. lines where the money because people will bet on the Warriors no matter what, and so right. you want to you want to get long odds for them because there's that enthusiasm it's kind of like um 
I think that uh, Bill Simmons used to talk about that with the Patriots odds, I believe it was, where you had to kind of push it a little higher because there was so much enthusiasm. So so it's it's one perspective. The Clippers and the Jazz are kind of right next to the Suns as well. And if Kawhi Leonard hadn't gotten hurt, the Clippers would be ahead of the Bucks. Right. So that's that's some of that is is playing on these narratives that we're kind of trying to unpack here. Um, so there is a little circularity in referencing just sure. the title odds, but it's also really interesting to think if the Bucks um, don't get by the Nets, for instance, if if Kevin Durant's toe is a foot behind the line, or or he, he wears a, a size fourteen instead of seventeen, or whatever it is, like maybe maybe the narratives on the Bucks, the Bucks aren't going to be there in the same um, sort of betting race. They're not going to have the same narratives. They're not going to have the same concepts of uh, building a team this way or doing it this way. It's really fascinating to think about, to say nothing of how we would talk about Giannis if if the last few rounds didn't happen. The league historically, I think, definitely has a a pattern of copycatting. Yes. So so sometimes there are champions that end up as kind of one-offs or things that don't fit the group, but a lot of times you end up with a championship team. Um, that team can stay together and sort of be relevant for multiple years like the Warriors have been. And that team becomes either a blueprint to copy or a sort of a rabbit to chase, something to aspire to defend. Um, okay, so like I'm thinking of Shaq with the Lakers in the early 2000s. He was a paradigm shifter in that you couldn't get your own Shaq so you had to, especially in the West, you had to build around the presence of Shaq because it was sort of that powerful. So you got to fill up your roster with a bunch of seven-foot dudes who can commit 18 fouls a game. And this has sort of been the trend. And I think what you're getting at is will whatever happened with the Bucks and to some degree the Suns as the other finalists and a team that was oh, I, very I, close. Oh, I think there's a big potential risk for teams replicating the Suns. So oh, I want to hear about this more, but um, – Right, like, will will these two teams, uh, as so often is the case, will they have any kind of role if we look back in 2025 on the shape of the league and the patterns, uh, both economically, free agent movement, and team building, you know, str- and strategy as well? Will this series or will these two teams in this playoff run have kind of any? Um, ink on that paper or is this just one of these you know i i had texted a couple friends during the series and i'm like i feel like i'm watching 1978 you know which is not to knock the bullets and the sonics of 1978 i enjoyed myself some jack sigma and and bobby dandridge when i go back through history but it's just one of those things that doesn't doesn't put a stake in the ground and like start to hammer home something new and something critical that influences the shape of the league going forward. I'll start with the positive. One thing that I truly loved about where things could go from here is the idea that you can build a championship level team in a wide variety of ways. It doesn't have to be hyper switching, doesn't have to be a ton of shooting, yep. doesn't have to be built around that heliocentric creator, the Steph Curry, yep. LeBron James. Like the but the Bucks are a different type of team and a Bucks team built like the Bucks can win a championship, not only because they did, but because they can't. And you need stupendous individual talent, which Milwaukee has. Um, but on, the po- on that point, just on that point, Danny, I mean, the fact that in a way the Bucks have a modern twin towers set up 
where you can drop Lopez or you can play Giannis at the five and extend and switch and do different stuff. And then they were able to do that within this series, yes. right? Like Lopez is dropping, Giannis is maybe switching. Um, we can play different lineups if we need to. That's really cool. And that's, to me, like the idea of defensive versatility, either by with the same personnel or by changing personnel, I think that's, you know, that is what makes in some ways the Bucks a spiritual analog to the 19 Raptors, where... Team, they, they were teams defensively that could succeed in different ways, or even the, I mean, the, the 2020 Heat, if they had won a championship, but, you know, they succeeded in a similar vein defensively. And I think that the Bucks, like, being able to do that, and, you know, what's crazy is I think they have more room to grow theoretically as a switching team. Also, that's why PJ Tucker was such an important addition for them. But the, so the thing you wanted me to talk about with the Suns and to, to an extent with the Bucks as well is that by their very nature, and you could think about the stuff that Neil O'Shea has said, general managers are optimistic and they're very confident about their own talent evaluation. And what you could think about from the perspective of both of these teams is that they identified themselves as being one player away. They gave up resources more for the Bucks than for the Suns for a variety of reasons to get that one player. And then they had massive success. And in the Suns case, traumatically higher success in both the regular season and the playoffs than they'd had in any recent vintage. A, most additions that you're going to get are not Chris Paul. Many of them are not Drew Holiday as well. But most teams aren't where the Suns were, where they had all, a lot of talented young players and they had had some things that basically led to them, even though the bubble Suns went undefeated, that they didn't make the playoffs and everything else. Like, they were in a very good situation. And, like, I mean, it was something Seth Partner and I talked about before the season of, like, is it possible that they're just a really good team and just hadn't, like, it, it just, we just haven't seen it yet, so we're risk averse. And, like, that is what ended up happening. So I could see, you know, like, basically teams that had glimmers of light. And they added a player who is arguably, in both cases, arguably not the best player on their team because Devin Booker, Booker and Paul in the regular season and everything else, it gets complicated. And they have, you know, both of these teams are incredible ensembles, but, you know, the Bucks have Giannis, so, you know, it's an ensemble with a star. And they did incredibly well. So will the, I mean, this is sort of the idea of the Vooch trade, like when, when the Bulls added Vucevic or somebody trying to theoretically get Kyle Lowry or, Mike Conley or, you know, or, you know, another, you know, player who becomes available, Bradley Beal or something else. And there are, there are a lot more teams that think they can be the next Suns or the next Bucks than actually can be. And it's not the worst thing in the world for basketball if some of those teams get a little bit more aggressive. But the other ripple effect I think is a really fascinating one when you think about, and it's all about defining success, which people who listen to this podcast will know is one of my favorite terms. Because the other thing that I think will be a huge ripple of these finals is the value of just being in the game. The value of, okay, maybe the Suns and the Bucks weren't the best teams in their conference. They weren't the most likely finalists. They weren't the most likely champion. But when you're in the arena, when you are a team that is in the top three, top four of your conference, things can happen to anybody. And if you were at that level, maybe you're not going to win the title every year. Maybe you're going to run into the buzzsaw and everything else. But if you're cool with running that risk, being in the top four is is a totally great place to be. Yeah, I like that last point a lot. Because it, it plugs into so much of the historical research I've done where if you are – and the 11 Mavs probably fall into this. If you are a team that is good enough to compete but you're not good enough to give yourself uh, really good leverages or high advantage odds or whatever and then something else happens. Someone else gets injured. You get hot. Right. Someone else has a bad series, whatever it is. All of us, you, you have home court from 
outperforming your win totals in the regular season, all of a sudden you're in the conference finals and the finals, you are giving yourself a bite at the apple. You're putting yourself in a position to win, and those teams aren't going to win 70 or 80% of the titles in a decade. But they may nab one or two. In fact, historically they have nabbed one or two. Uh, and I think, yeah, that that's a really interesting to think, thing to point out about team building. We agree they're different, right? The Chris Paul thing feels like a different kind of addition than Drew Holiday to the yes. Bucks. Especially okay. with the extension that Drew Holiday signed and, you know, that was right, probably right. understood at the time. Right. What's interesting is I think if they were healthy and Terrence Mann aside, I think the Jazz were going to win the title if they were healthy. Interesting. And they would have, right? And they and that would have been because of the addition of a guy like Mike Conley, which kind of fits in the true category. So, you're you're adding someone to a team that isn't a superstar. You're adding someone to a team that may give you a, a, a wonderful third or fourth option. It may give you really good playoff diversity that you didn't have after that. And you're adding this player, and that player, by nature of not being a superstar, doesn't make you a juggernaut. But all of a sudden, he puts you in that competitive level. I think the Bucks had that this year. I think the uh, the Jazz had that when they were at full strength with Conley. That is a really interesting thing to think about how many teams or general managers will attempt to make moves like that moving forward, assuming some super team doesn't float to the top of the pack. Those moves feel a little less, mm, I don't know what the right word is, comfortable or warranted when you're trying to take down the 2018 Golden State Warriors or something. But in an environment like this, those seem to be like moves that can can kind of get you over the tipping point of oh I'm not the I'm not the favorite to win the title but all of a sudden as you said I'm there and if I can trust the guys to be available uh, and I have something with this team that makes them very good if not close to great uh, then I've got bites at the apple and that's all I really want the Suns one obviously is harder because of Chris Paul's stature as a player combined with his uh, age and contract. Right, and there, there is a challenge. I don't want to get into all this that with Nate and I have talked about where it's just like, where do the Suns go from here, which is so fascinating because like they have all these young players that are going to continue to get better, but Chris Paul at some point is going to drop off, and how do they get another Chris Paul, or can they get enough growth from Aiton, Booker, and Bridges yep. to stay in that mix? And also, mm. this is, I, I would say, I mean, and it's funny because— I'm closest to I'm closest to graphically to the Golden State Warriors. You know, I wrote a book on their history, and I was telling people, and it's it's so interesting to use the 2016 year because you think about their success before and after. And I was doing radio spots during that year, and I kept on saying, "Appreciate this for what it is. It is like I mean, 73 and nine was an unbelievable accomplishment. Nobody can ever take that away from them." And I didn't know at that point that they weren't going to win the championship and that it was going to be this interesting flashpoint in various discussions. But that is the biggest thing that I can I can talk to, I, I want to say to, to Bucks fans and to Suns fans and to Giannis fans and Chris Paul fans and wherever you're going, appreciate this for what it is. It is a truly special accomplishment. And there were favorable things that got you here. There may be brighter moments in the future. There may not be. We don't know that. But it is a spectacular accomplishment. This was a wonderful season full of great moments and triumphs. And you never know. And I think both of these franchises have had so many disappointments in different different ways in the last few years that it's like, don't it, it, it may get better. Maybe this is the beginning of a dynasty, but it is an unbelievable feeling. Savor it. Remember it because you never know where things will go. Man, I don't want to get too, philosoph- too philosophical this early in the morning, but I mean, I feel that way about I feel that way about like every season. Um, 
and I and I feel that way probably in a in a matter that can be summed up as the journey is the thing, not yes. the destination. You know, and sometimes sometimes as a fan of a particular team or player, you get all the way home, but I mean, especially like look at it from the Suns perspective. I mean just just enjoying and, and being able to kind of soak in um the the ride uh, the all of the players, all of the things that happened. Monty Williams. I, I mean, to me, uh, this is, I guess, why I love basketball history so much. Those things are indelible, and they're not just about the single team that won at the end of the season. Absolutely, um, they're not just about the Finals MVP. They're about all of the other stuff. Uh, speaking of speaking of philosophical, Danny, I I'm offended. I thought you were going to invite me on today to do a meta podcast about the. Um, the mock trade off season. I'm, I'm still waiting for that. <laughs> I, after spending five hours on it yesterday, I'm not sure I'm ready to do that just yet. At some point. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Is it mock free agency? What is the name of that? This is the mock off uh, season. The mock off. It's, 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 it should, it should have like a show. It, you guys should get a studio for it and film it. It, um, it, yeah. I mean, everyone loves it for good reason. It cracks me up. It, it's so funny because there are, it, it is, an incredible undertaking and we love doing it. And at the same point, I spend most of the next day obsessing over the things I didn't do well for the teams that like, I thought I was a poor manager of the Sixers and I feel really guilty about that because like they're an important team. Some of that was also the nature of how we did the Ben Simmons negotiations and everything else. And the the nature of who you're negotiating with, you know, like it's four of us and we each, we, we are in some ways more of like mind than the diaspora of general managers that exist in the league. Um, so I end up taking small solaces out of, and a lot of those have not, are not in the parts that have aired yet of like small moves that I did for specific teams that I'm like, oh, this is a, like, that's a really nice fit and doing all that. But it's more just like, Ugh, I don't think I did well by the Sixers. Their fans are going to be mad at me. Like, I wish I would have done this. I would have done that. And, like, the other part of it is it, people have said at different points, it's like, yeah, it's hard to manage 10 teams. Like, maybe you should add more people. We should not add more people. It's <laughs> way too hard to manage. Like, it's, I mean, with three basically negotiating in one player agent, like, that's, if, if like, people have talked about, like, we've had, thought about adding a, you know, like, adding a fourth, like, general manager. But it's like, it's already complicated enough. <laughs> and, and also, like, we, I don't know how we could ask somebody else to do the amount of work it takes to do this, to do that podcast. Like, I would, I, we all love it, but how many people are simultaneously wired that way and have the capacity to do it? I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there are others, but it's like, but I have those moments in that first day where I regret things and I get frustrated, but I, at this point, this was our seventh year of it. I know that that is part wow. of the experience. And the other great thing about the mock-off season is that it gets supplanted by the real off season so quickly. And then, then you get all into that mode. And so it's like, it is great for what it is. And I hope that people enjoy it. And it's like, it's one of my favorite things to do, but it gets supplanted so quickly that, and I mean, like, not only is it basically the off season starts in roughly a week, the draft is between now and then. And so there's all the insanity that comes with that. And like, we might see star players get traded. We might see everything else. And so it's like, Again, it's like enjoy things while they last because you never know where things are going to go because this league moves a mile a minute and that doesn't mean your mind has to move a mile a minute. It doesn't mean your heart has to move a mile a minute, but there's a lot going on. I, I, I love that you have regret over, over your mock fake, um, sort of moves on, on that show and thinking about like what it must feel like in real life to have to commit 
to those deals and then... oh man like i mean so i'm 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 a perfectionist i'm obsessive over many things like i i obsess sometimes over like we went on a trip and i didn't think i booked the right hotel like that sort of like that sort of thing where we ended up somewhere nice and things were totally fine and it's like i can't imagine if my like legacy if something i truly cared about were tied into these sorts of decisions so yeah i'm i'm very happy I'm not a, a general manager. If the situation ever presents itself, maybe I will say differently. But oh my goodness, I can't. I can't even imagine. Like you know, like there's there's the stuff that was coming up of like all the general managers, all the teams that passed on Giannis, and like yeah, Danny Ainge mm, took yeah. Kelly Olynyk, Shabazz Muhammad went immediately before him, and yeah, that's not great. And I mean, I had Giannis ahead of those guys on my board way back in the in 2013 draft board, but it's incredible. And full circle, uh, for anyone who's who's still listening at this point, like those decisions are the decisions, even the little ones like picking up P.J. Tucker. I mean, those are the differences sometimes between the Bucks losing in the second round in, in a year like this year, uh, them sort of moving to the back of everyone's mind, all sorts of ne- negative narratives being spun about them, negative narratives being spun about Giannis being a choker, not being able to do it. Uh, and and maybe for them going forward, you know, most realistically, they don't get the reps that they got in the last two rounds of these playoffs and the experience and the growth as players, as subtle as it is, that experience can be so helpful moving forward uh, when you're kind of in the cauldron of the postseason, Bud's improvement as a coach. I mean, it really all comes down to that that decision that you're making um, in a offseason mock uh, podcast or in their case real life yeah it, it's incredible well I, I know you and i could go on forever but i'm going to thank you so much for your time it was an absolute pleasure awesome danny appreciate it thanks again to ben taylor for taking the time to come on you can listen to his work on the thinking basketball podcast you can watch it on youtube you can check out his patreon which is also called thinking basketball and you can read his book which is fantastic too you can also follow him on twitter at e-l-g-e-e and then the number three and the number five Love having been on, love his perspective, and I had basically earmarked him as being the person I wanted to talk to after these finals, and then as I mentioned in kind of the beginning part of it, it got more interesting than I expected, which is always fantastic, and it's been such a fascinating run, so loved having been on and going down some of those rabbit holes that he's so good at identifying and articulating. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can Subscribe, download every episode that is particularly strong for Real GM Radio because it will never come out a specific day of the week. It's going to be when I'm around, my guest is around, everything else. And whether it's Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And the same for helping other people find the show, leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing. Word of mouth can be very important too, social media, everything else. So really do appreciate that. You can also check out my other work. Now, there are no live broadcasts anymore, but of course, Nate and I are still going strong. Dunked on, we just did the mock-off season, which also means we're doing a huge sale for Dunked on Prime. You can check that out. The first part of the mock-off season is going to be free, public. I believe it's already out. And then subsequent parts, we recorded for five and a half hours on Thursday. So I don't know how many parts it's going to be. I just know that that's how long the recording was. Um, those will be, I presume, on Dunked on Prime. You can check my Twitter. You can check Nate's Twitter for how exactly we're administering that. Also, we've been doing draft analysis, did Cade Cunningham earlier this week, which was really fun. And that will continue through the draft, through the offseason and everything else. Also, my written work for Real GM, or sorry, for, well, I do some for Real GM, but for uh, The Athletic is 
continuing as well. I've, I've done collaborative pieces over the last few weeks and have a bunch more things in the works, as you could guess, considering this time of the year. So there's a lot you can check out. And if you want to share any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I'm not the greatest at responding, especially this time of year in all honesty, but I will read it. That's something I do every day. It is exceedingly important to me to do so. And that changes the show, makes it better. Hey, you should have this person on or this worked, this didn't work. Like I get those kind of things pretty regularly and I really do appreciate it. So a lot heading down in in the near future. Want to try to cover as much ground as I can here, but also with everything else that I do. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.